Isabel. And I'm Morgan. <laughs> this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About flannel. About IPAs. About dreaming. About medication. About drug dependency. About not dealing with your issues. About rape. About sad marriage. About hobbies. About bad bosses. And about coffee and beer. Mm-hmm. Mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week we are talking about Sleeping Together by Kitty Cook. Fake name. Totally. She says it in her author bio. She does. She mm-hmm. also says she writes for like the New York Times on Salon.com. Mm-hmm. Actual photo. The fact that she has like a pin name and her actual photo reminds me of the people on those Haunted America TV shows where they blur their face, but they're standing in front of their house. <laughs> <laughs> so their neighbors don't know that they think there's a ghost. <laughs> That's so good. That's really good. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Do you want to do the summary? I do want to do the summary. Great. I like it when you do the summary. Where in a married woman named Vanessa who goes by Ness or Nessie because Never of Nessie. her extremely long neck and proclivity for still waters. Nerd. <laughs> Anyways, so our main character, Ness, she's 31. She's married. She's living in Seattle and she's working for a drugs pharmaceuticals company in their urban offices in Seattle where they do early stage human testing. And they are testing a sleeping pill currently. So her job is to give people the sleeping pills and then interview them about what their experience has been like with them. Then our hero is her co-worker named Alton, who is a divorcee. He is sad and hetero and he starts siphoning off some of the pills instead of destroying them when people leave the study and he discovers that you can have these really intense lucid dreams so he finds out that Ness isn't sleeping very well because her husband wants to have a baby and she doesn't so he gives her some pills and then they discover after a really intense sex dream that they had the same sex dream and that in fact they can meet each other so they start a relationship in their lucid dreams there's also a bad boss named Malcolm, who is also like an evil pharmaceutical corporation incarnate. We also discover that Ness is a survivor of rape and that has something to do with why she doesn't want children. Her relationship with Alton grows and as does her chemical dependency on these drugs. And then she kicks the habit and she ends up leaving her husband for Alton happily ever after. Have you ever had a lucid dream? I've known that I've been dreaming, but I'm not the type of person who like can make that move. Like, oh, I know I'm dreaming. Like the dream then just continues to perform itself. Like I can't change anything about it. Yeah, I can't control it. Yeah. But I'm usually aware I'm dreaming. Some pretty fucked up shit has to happen before I'm like, oh, this is a dream. (laughs) Usually I'm like, of course, handsome men turn into orca whales all the time in my life. So this feels right. Man, kind of an intense insight there into your personal life. Is it? Yeah. That just feels like common knowledge. (laughs) But you fantasize about men turning into orca whales. Yeah. Well, here we go. Feel like I'm going you know to make the logical <laughs> leap there and say that you fantasize about orca whales is what's actually happening there. I do fantasize about orca whales, which, you know, I was sad that a book taking place in Seattle didn't mention the Salish Sea or orca whales or the resident J-Pod. This is important. You heard it here first. Isabeau finds baby seal murder sexy as hell. She's into it. 
it's not it's sexually. Not, it's not murder. They have to eat. They've got babies oh, of their oh, own. Oh, sorry. You're right. You're right. You're right. I editorialized. Thank there. you. Eating baby seals. <laughs> there you go. Turns Isabeau on like a faucet. Only when orca whales do it. I'm not like for eating seals. No, certainly not. Unless, unless you are a, a two-time little orca whale porpoise. Get on it. Ah! <laughs> anyway, yeah. A book about Seattle that doesn't mention orca whales is a waste. To be honest, I was never even sure it was happening in Seattle because there weren't enough orca whale-based details to tell me it was Seattle. This book is Seattling really hard. So fucking hard. I think maybe Seattle is an interesting place to start because Seattle is the site of many a modern contemporary romance. Most importantly, Fifty Shades of Grey Good takes point. place in Seattle. But remember, like, every time a scene started, she'd be like, it was another sunny day in Seattle. At first, I was like, maybe she's being sarcastic, but then she would describe, like, sunny day activities and I was like oh she really thinks Seattle is sunny that's one of the things that's hard for me about 10 things I hate about you it's like unrelentingly sunny in that film and it takes place in Seattle so what I think this book gets right about Seattle especially Seattle in the winter slash slow to come spring is that it rains all the time and everything's cold and wet and dark it's a perfect place to start a romance whilst to sleep yes because it's good napping weather it's really good napping weather and everybody's slightly depressed because they have had vitamin D in six months. Yeah, yeah. And lots of beer drinking, mm-hmm. lots of flannel wearing. Lots of lots coffee. Of, oh, lots of coffee. Lots of good time Seattle shit happening in this book. Mm-hmm. Is it sleepless in Seattle that makes Seattle such an interesting site for love? Like, what's romantic about Seattle? The rain. I mean, there are lots of things. I think, you know, so Sleepless in Seattle takes place at a particular time before the tech boom, right? They used to have billboards at the edge of Seattle that said, like, last person out, turn off the lights and, like, keep Seattle weird in the same way that they did with Portland before the boom. And now, like, all of that sort of, like, oddball charm, like, what I would consider, like, weirdo radio DJs from the 80s, like, that kind of stuff has been materialized and marketed to such a point. Seattle wouldn't have bought its own hype 25 or 30 years ago, but like now everybody moved there and the people who moved there buy Seattle's hype. Real World Seattle. That was a good Seattle. That was, that was a good Real a World good one. Remember the guy started working at the fish throwing place? Yeah. I think that was one of my first like ticklish in my swimsuit area situations. Watching um, people throw fish? Just like a big burly guy in a toque. Like handling his business. Indeed, that's (laughs) Seattle in a nutshell. I think you've just described why Seattle is a good place to set uh, romance. Burly dudes handling their shit. Was Reality Bites the one that takes place in Seattle? The like 90s young people movie? That takes place in Austin. There's one that takes place in Seattle. Not Reality Bites. No. I think like the thing that was so good about this book in terms of its Seattle is like it captured the various sides of it right so the unrelenting cold and wet the weather the weather part of it but also like the people like she talks about the Seattle chill where it's like people don't meet new people starting in November because everybody basically just stays at their office has a happy hour and then leaves like everybody gets really insular in the winter because the sun sets at 3 30 and so like that was great but also just like how nasty the tech boom has been in terms of both housing in terms of like money in terms of like what it means to make it in a city like Seattle right now and like the fact that the urban campus 
is kind of run down in a windowless, nasty building. Yeah. But like the magazine cover campus just outside in the burbs where like the Boeing campuses is beautiful. And like they bike to work and they have like ping pong and all that other yeah. fucked up shit. And I thought like this book was really working on like the magazine Seattle and like the real Seattle. Yeah. Like she's married to a high powered divorce lawyer and they can barely afford their one bedroom apartment. Yeah. One thing I really enjoyed about this book was the lack of glamour and the lifestyle. Her life was very, relatable she's tired all the time she essentially wears like a self-created uniform every day she is not at all where she imagined herself to be she's not even working for the weekend she's just working to get by and she's allowed herself all of these little secrets to keep her life interesting because to be honest, she doesn't really find a lot of interest in her married life. She's pretty bored by it, I think. And so she has like her secret crush on her coworker, her little flirtations she allows herself to do. She also has her secret photography hobby that she's actually making money off of that she keeps from her husband. Yeah, she's storing secrets like dragons hoard gold. It creates a lot of space in her marriage. And at first, like that space is like a virtue where it's like, we don't have to do all the same things all the time and like we can be separate but then it turns out like that space is too much that space is like the only place she wants to live right like she kind of wants her marriage to be the little slice she's creating stories always already Mm -hmm. with her little secret creation you know and so the fact that she enters into this world of lucid dreaming and really becomes obsessed by it makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. totally where we come in her husband Pete who just seems like a genuine nice human is like hey what about babies and it sends her into a three-week panic where she has these terrible nightmares and she can't get a good night's sleep and she won't tell Pete that she was sexually assaulted in college that then resulted in a pregnancy that she aborted because of that twofold secret and her inability to communicate about it she just cannot get over this panic about wanting kids or not wanting kids and not knowing and like the terror of it so then she gets to work and her flirtatious (laughs) relationship with her co-worker Alton and he's like you look like shit and she's like, you look like 10 shits. She thinks it's so witty throughout the book. She does. She repeats it like three times. Also I, worth noting that this book is in first person in both of their heads. Yes. So the hero's first person is divided up interestingly between his dream journal entries that he started keeping after he realized how intense the dreams were on the drug and his own actual first person perspective. Let's talk about Alton real quick, okay. our hero. So he has lived the life that our heroine always dreamed of living. He used to travel a lot. Mm -hmm. He and his partner, ex-wife, had their own kind of failed pregnancy Mm -hmm. and it led them to settle down in Seattle and then she left him. After two years of trying... Yeah. I've read a lot of books where like the trials of trying to get pregnant and like IVF and pills and everything is like really delved into. But since that's the dissolution of their marriage and their relationship, getting into that Alton feels guilty about not wanting to try anymore and that like that's the thing that ends the marriage was a really interesting perspective in terms of like his guilt. It wasn't that he stopped loving her or anything else. It was that he considered himself an asshole for not like wanting to give her this gift, which 
had been like, you know, the creation of life. And he's just like, I'm tired. I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. They got pregnant unexpectedly the first time she was pregnant unexpectedly, which I think is important Mm -hmm. to note. And then she miscarried and then they couldn't get pregnant again. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really interesting that Alton has already lived the life that our heroine has always wanted to live. Mm -hmm. And it's through that that she kind of gives him control over the dream world because his memories are so much more interesting um, to her because they're at different places around the world and the memories create a stronger, more stable dream reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Fiji, Paris, Machu Picchu, Thailand, India. Like he's been Mm -hmm. all over. Yeah. Morocco. And she hasn't been anywhere. She's never even left the state. She doesn't have a passport. Yeah, she goes to Canada. She does get her passport for that. Yeah, and like her husband is Pete. I want to talk about Pete. He's not just like a good guy. Like he is a husband with a capital H. Yes. Like he husbands all over the place. Like he's very practical. He's very supportive. And he wants to continue husbanding in the current husband direction, which is to become a dad. And our heroine really struggles because she is not interested in that side of him. And I think she realizes she's not really interested in the husband side of him. And he his like favorite book is The Great Gatsby, um, which, which she has a problem with, book. but she also has like the most boring problems with the great Gatsby oh my god this gets me to something I want to talk about which is I found the heroine a little insufferable like I felt like she thought her jokes were brilliantly funny she also felt like she was very smart and witty and insightful and I disagreed yes I thought she was selfish and myopic and suffering from all of the things that I think that guy in everybody's MFA class suffers from. And in all of those ways, it made it hard for me to sympathize with her. And like it made it not that she was unlikable in the sense that like she was written as an unlikable heroine because I think she was written to be a likable heroine. Yeah. I just didn't find her that way. No. Yeah. I think I was supposed to think she was funny. Yeah. I don't think she's funny. And I think like one of the uh, most immediate failures was it sort of turned for me like the second time that she did the oh I look like shit you look like 10 shits and she's like I had learned from an early age to cultivate male respect and humor and friendship in this way mm-hmm. and I was like okay so you're like the kind of girl who's like I don't have female friends because women are catty she also does this thing where she's like it's important when talking to a man to know all of his references and I was like I cannot find anything more boring and annoying than people who just quote movies and TV shows. Oh my God, they quoted so many movies. And And like none of them were deep cuts. You know what I mean? No, nothing (laughs) was interesting. It's like if you find something funny, just let it be funny in that moment and come up with your own funny shit. Like quoting is basically being like, remember that time in Super Troopers? Mm -hmm. Like it's just dumb. Team Ramrod. Team Ramrod. (laughs) Oh my God. It's just the dumbest. It's so lazy. I read I Didn't Come Here to Make Friends, which is a memoir by the first real villainess of the Bachelor franchise, Courtney. And she was like, I guess I just couldn't be like those other women. Like, I love to quote movies, whatever. And it's like, that doesn't make you cool. Quoting movies does not make you cool. Quoting TV shows does not make you cool. And I'm sorry. We've all fucking seen The Office. 
Sure. Like, quit acting like that's a personality. Sure. It's also weird to me the assumption that, like, men quote movies more than women. And I'm like, women quote movies all the fucking time. They might quote different movies. Like, they're not quoting Star Wars at quite the same decibel. But that's also because they've been made to feel shitty in those spaces. You know what I mean? So then it's like, I don't understand it on any of its moves. I think quoting movies and, like, having that be, like, a cultural cachet of your brilliance is like, cool, you can remember shit. You know who else can remember shit? Mathematicians. Everyone can remember shit. Yeah. I don't know. It was weird. It was weird. It was weird that she's like, I have to do this to cultivate, like, male respect. Yeah, and, like, that's how she flirts, and it's so... Do you know what probably made me angriest, though, is that while I was reading, I was like, this works. Like, this will get men to like you. I was in a bar last night. (laughs) Go figure. And I was talking to this guy, and I realized, like, he was asking me questions. He asked me a question or two, correction. And I realized after the first question, when he asked me the second one, like, he does not care. Like, I could say whatever the fuck I want. And so he came and he was like, I'm kind of sick of this deep conversation over here. What do you want to talk about? And I was like, I don't know. People don't really ask me that. And he's like, well, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. You've got, like, that faraway look in your eye. And that was when I was like, all right, fuck it. I think that people are transcribing this idea that Ted Bundy was sexy onto the postscript and no one wants to talk about why. He was like, yeah, but like, that was like his appeal. And I was like, that was his appeal after people found out he murdered women. Yeah. And it just fell apart. And I was like, yeah, like no one gives a shit what I have to say. No one gives a shit what I'm thinking about. They just want me to quote movies back to them to prove that their taste is shared by me. I think it's the shared taste, but also like then like the affirmation that comes with it and it's oh, also just one affirmation and if you don't provide affirmation like if I don't get affirmed I'm like oh okay that's part of having a conversation if they don't get affirmed they're like goodbye yeah. <laughs> or like you don't get it you're not part of the group and like there's a moment where like her mind is somewhere else so she misses a reference and then he draws attention to the fact that she missed the reference and I'm like you guys like this isn't actually now a conversation this is just verbiage that you've created that yeah. is like inhabiting the space of conversation yeah so in that way like that sucked and was annoying but like in the space I think what you said about Pete like husbanding all over the place that became a sort of crutch as well in the same way that these references was he like fell into the role of husband and then like fucking doubled down yeah where he's like this is what support looks like this is what conversations in adulthood in marriage look like and he never thought to question whether or not a that was working for their relationship yeah or like how to expand or even contract that role yeah and so then it just became like a crutch that they leaned too hard on. And then when it wouldn't hold the weight, it didn't. But there was also this part where she complains a lot about him holding her too tightly whenever she wakes up from nightmares and how he doesn't realize how anxiety inducing that is. And it's like, well, did you tell him? Right. And she never does. Yeah. It's a two way street. That was my main problem with the problem with Pete. And yes. Yeah is like she's holding all of the secrets and like he's honestly trying and like so he introduces the bombshell of I want to be a parent with you which sends her into a tailspin which he can clearly see and is like let's talk about it let's talk about it let's have a dinner let's talk about it and he keeps trying to come back to the conversation and she keeps driving around it which is like the most immature thing in the world Yeah. and then when she's finally ready to talk about it because she's already talked about it with Alton he doesn't perform in the way that she wants wants him to Mm -hmm. and then she's upset with him and takes her drugs and like checks out yeah knocks herself out yeah which would have been fucking terrifying as Pete 
Also, why didn't Pete call a doctor? Oh, fuck, I know. Pete when makes- his wife was sleeping for 18 hours or something crazy after taking sleeping pills? Yeah, she's like sleeping away entire weekends. He's like, babe, or he calls her bug. Shut she her calls bug. him worm. worm. Ew. Sounds kind of horny and slutty. It does, I guess. A little bit dirty, but it's not. But it's not. You kind of just wish it would be. The first time she called him worm, I was like, oh, uh, is this like a little kinky? But no. it's like, no, it's short for bookworm. Yeah, and she shut her bug. Uh-huh. I was like, Bug, you slept for like 36 hours. Should we talk about getting you a therapist? Because this is a clinical sign of depression. But now he just takes her to waffle brunch. Yeah. I'm like, what the fuck are we all doing here? Like, she is clearly fucking down. Something's very wrong. And everyone's like, let's go get rich. I was like, this feels very strange to me. Like this, like as somebody in an intimate relationship where like sometimes my primary role is simply like witness yeah I'm like (laughs) primary role of witness is to see things so like tell you what if somebody slept for like fucking 48 hours I'd be like so do you need to eat you also seem really dehydrated and maybe we should talk about your undiagnosed depression yeah like what's going on here yeah let's have it be like hey can't believe you're sleeping so much it's like you don't want to spend time with me I know (laughs) and then Pete's primary sin becomes it's not selfishness it's like self-centered it's like she's clearly hurting and he can't see that because he's only seeing how it affects him and like that didn't feel right or fair to that character at the time also important pete was actually alton's divorce attorney yeah alton lives in a sad studio apartment for bachelors he keeps his coffee coffee pot pot next to his his bed bed. oh and he's also sleeping with pete's paralegal sarah oh yeah yeah he starts hooking up with sarah there are things in this book that feel more true to me than like any other romance novel contemporary romance novel has which is the idea of like a divorced guy like just trying to make it work the online dating thing at one point they have a fight and ness goes to his house to proclaim her love and he's in his underwear and he's like i really just think you should leave and then she does (laughs) he talks about like then he finished having sex with sarah who was in his apartment and asked her to leave. It's like, yeah, bad. like that's how this works is like sex is like this weird utility in the same way that like hot water is a utility. Like you need it and you just kind of take it for granted. It's always there and is not like this big like orchestra swelling like fireworks. I think romance always kind of sees sex in this very myopic way, which is a romantic way of looking at sex and like between two people or it's I think romance sees sex as a specific kind of conversation. In romance novels, it's never like we met online and now we have sex and there's not really a whole lot else going on here. Like there's always something else going on. Right. Because like sex is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of like romance's version of what sex is. Yeah. And like sex, obviously for Alton and lots of other people, it's like sometimes you just fucking need it. Okay. Well, people just have sex. Yeah. Like, yes. So I appreciated that part of this romance novel the acknowledgement that people just have sex and it you know people feel a way about it it's not always a big fucking deal it's not always the beginning of something or the end of something or like the 
discovery of something. Or like the climax of something else. Yes. So I appreciated that. Yeah. Although I feel like the book kind of wanted us to think Alton was shitty for doing that. You know, that's interesting because I think the book wanted that too, but I didn't feel shitty about Alton in that moment. I felt like here's a human being who's actually working to put himself together. And one of the things that he's doing is like finding human connection in this way. Yeah. And that was so weird because like, I know we're harder on heroines and I know like, you know, that the patriarchy is like primed me to be that way. But like Ness was hard and like Alton was already in a position of like trying to work on his shit. So he was Mm -hmm. already in a position where it's like Ness is not in a position where she's working on her shit. She's in an active position of denying that she even has shit. Yeah. That made her hard for me in a lot of ways. And so then when she's judging Alton, I'm like, fucking leave that guy alone, man. He's living in a studio and his coffee pot's by his loft bed. Yeah. He's like just trying to make it work. Yeah. And she even says she's like, I'm just trying to have my cake and eat it too. When he calls her out on it, he's like, you get to go home and have sex with Pete. And she's like, cake and eat it too. And I'm like, that's not nice. That's not nice. And it's also not funny. Yeah. It's neither. So the first sex scene in the book sounds really interesting when people talk around it, but like write it. Yeah. None of the sex scenes are written. Yeah. They are all just alluded to. With the exception of the fairly visceral rape. Yeah. The rape is very visceral. Rape happens in romance novels a lot Mm -hmm. as a character motivation Mm -hmm. and as a plot device. Mm -hmm. Kind of a bummer, that fact. Yes. Yeah. And one in four women will be sexually assaulted by the time they reach 25. I don't like that it's used as like every character who has some kind of dark past, right? Or even like an instigating incident. One in four women are raped, but it shouldn't be used as like... A character driver. Yeah. It shouldn't be used as like a... Here's the monkey wrench in the writer's romance writer's toolbox. Rape. Or any writer's toolbox. And I'm always incredibly disappointed when I find it especially in contemporary romances or rape was a shorthand for a different kind of thing in the 70s when you couldn't talk about like women's sexuality in the same way that you can in 2019. And so then to have a character motivation where it's like absent of literally anything else, like this is a woman without parents. This is a woman without friends. This is a woman who has exactly two points of contact and a bad boss. Yeah. And her rape. So then it's like, we are really absent a life for our main character, Ness. And so then the rape takes on a much larger sphere inside of this world that I think was like, A, unnecessary and B, kind of, I don't want to say lazy, but like easy in a particular way, right? Like this is a trauma that then motivates all these other decisions, like a domino effect. Yeah. it's like, that's tired. It is. And she has that scene where Alton shows her the miscarriage memory. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, I'll show you my memory. And she creates this allegory of like prison Mm -hmm. and puts Alton in it. And I was like, that's also tired to be like, if you're a man, guess what? You can get raped in prison is also like a bad act. It's problematic. It's so boring to say it's problematic. These assumptions we make about incarceration are destructive. You know what? I'm glad that we're talking about this because like the sexual assault that she endures as a sophomore in college sets her on this path where she's like been afraid to travel. She's been afraid to do this. She like makes safe choices and then she also keeps secrets. And then the way that we are then forced to dislike Pete by the end of the book is like she finally confesses after knowing him for eight years that she's had 
had this sexual assault and then she immediately checks out of that conversation by taking this medication that puts her into her lucid dream state yeah. and later she dreams that they have this like wonderful catharsis and like he's really supportive but it's all a dream and so then he not having experienced her dream comes back later and is like were you even really assaulted mm-hmm. and then she's like how could you not believe me and he's like it's not that I don't believe you it's just like I didn't want your story to change and it's like that felt like a particular kind of shorthand where it's like well now I have to hate Pete because yeah. he doesn't trust women yeah and it's like nothing about Pete until that moment was that kind of damning yeah and then like then it made it okay that she was gonna leave him for Alton which is like again lazy like she could have just left him because he wasn't right for her yeah because they weren't in love anymore yeah like it's over when it's it's over it's over exactly why do we have to make Pete then like a lesser kind of a bad douche yeah and then of course whenever Malcolm we discover that Malcolm has been like hiding in the bushes of all their shared dreams and has been likewise undergoing this experimentation with the drugs he like lures her and he an attempted rape happens again and Alton has to save her like all the bad in the world is rape and all of the good in the world comes from like I don't even fucking know like why is there so much it is the most occupying force in this text her rape yeah yeah and then another attempted rape yeah and like her boss fucking jerks off in front of her and is like sexually threatening her throughout the novel yeah yeah it's a lot it is a lot talking about having your cake and eating it and there's something about using rape as a tool in a genre that refutes allegory and like is really intentionally unless people like want it to saying something about the larger society like whenever romance intentionally says something like about a larger cultural moment it's always like this kind of milk toast feminism mm-hmm. it's rape culture to have it be so insistent and pervasive and to make it such a single driver it's like normalizing it in a different way yeah and especially since there are no other women's voices in this book yeah like she has no friends yeah she has no friends and like what's so weird about it is so we have a very visceral rape scene and then we also have a very visceral attempted rape scene and like Malcolm her bad boss jerks off in front of her but like her sex scenes with Alton are entirely fade to black and then talked around and her one sex scene with Pete is then clouded over because she unfortunately is triggered about her rape yeah so then what feels weird about this romance novel is that all scenes of consensual good sex are entirely edited out. Yeah. So then it's like, well, why though? Yeah. If we're going to have like the darkest end of the spectrum, why wouldn't we have the fun side of the spectrum too? In this genre? Yeah, especially. Especially. I agree. I had a hard time with it. It just felt like the wrong use. It felt like the wrong use of everything in the same way that it's like, I don't want to say that it felt like after school specially, but there was something Lifetime-esque about it. Yeah, there was definitely something Lifetime-esque about it. I feel good saying that because I like Lifetime. (laughs) It was. It was that kind of every man who arrives is going to be bad, like in a really Baroque way, like Mm -hmm. immediately questioning the legitimacy of your confession about getting sexually assaulted or locking the door and jerking off in front of you while you cry and then attempting to rape you in your lucid dream state. Which also then makes Alton the only good guy in the book, which seems crazy because he's 
you know, seducing a married woman or they're mutually seducing one another. But like, that's the motivator though, right? Because yeah. he understands her and yeah. Pete doesn't. Because she, she reveals herself to him. Though. Right. She's honest with him. She's honest with him and she's not honest with Pete. Right. And the book kind of frames that as like, because they should be together, she feels comfortable enough around him to show. And it's like, no, she just made a choice. And continued to make choices. Mm-hmm. And that felt weird because it, like the book felt like it was like trying to excuse her, explain her. And I'm like, all you have to say is she's making a choice. Yeah. Like we get that. And she gets to make her choices. Yeah. Like people get to not like the person they married anymore. People get to do that. People get to like other folks. Like it happens. Yeah. It's part of being a person. Like it feels very after school special. The cause and effectness of it. Correlation is not causation. Yes. So in that way, it was like all of this is disappointing. I mean, the concept really delivered for me. It was Mm -hmm. fascinating. I really appreciated the fact that like she became addicted to the substance Mm -hmm. and was abusing the drug and got worse and worse. Like it wasn't what I was expecting. I didn't expect the book to treat the medium for the romance as a narcotic. And it does, which is really interesting. Yeah, it got fascinating in the move of like how one could become addicted not only to sleeping well, but then lucid dreaming with your hot co worker and then Alton became not even an excuse he became something else and like her addiction to lucid dreaming and her desire to escape her reality and her paralysis and everything else became fascinating to watch as people tried to pull her out of this tailspin and then we have like one of the other subjects in the trial who actually does overdose on purpose and like what it is to like have a conversation about wanting to escape your reality and like how seductive that is and this book I think treated that like with all of like the respect and nuance that that deserves like if you're gonna have something unpleasurable in a romance novel it's usually rape or murder and it was nice to have something different than those two things Mm -hmm. even though it still also had rape a discussion of substance abuse felt way more interesting and way more relevant and made sense and worked for me in this book in a way that the other bad actors didn't. I also like that she was married and the other guy was divorced. I like that they were older, like 31 and at a crossroads. That felt really fresh because even the contemporary romances we've read, everyone's been in their 20s, mm-hmm. which is silly. <laughs> totally. So the concept of like falling in love with someone via a mutual lucid dreaming affected by a drug study is riveting. And it works in the book as well as it does is like up elevator pitch totally and like I think for me this book works best on its vivid details so like they're still trying to experiment with how the drug is actually working so they're like well maybe we have to see each other before we fall asleep and then that hypothesis is disproven and then they like wear each other's t-shirts for several hours like a little romantic day out where they go to a flea market and he discovers her photography like they have actual like in-person encounters Mm -hmm. that are really charming and Mm -hmm. lovely and like kind of work on that level of like early love and friendship except then they get to go to sleep and have this really intense shared experience right and she refers to like the experience as like a truth serum inside of the drug itself where it's like you can't lie in dreams because like the dream image will shake yeah so when she wears his t-shirt to see if like it's smell induced this connection and it is and it is she doesn't do the thing where she's like it smelled like man which is parsimons and the whatever yeah, she's woods. like yeah she's like it smelled like 
being a teenager again where like all there was to intimacy was closeness and I love that part yeah it is the details there is something like really affecting about the concept and really relatable on this like feeling this barrier when you're in another person's physical presence but once you're like texting or like online like when you're a kid suddenly you have all of this like articulation and confidence and how you're portraying yourself and your feelings for the other person and like you're able to flirt in this really deft way that like if you were in their physical presence you'd just like kick a rock or something liminal spaces and it works on that level beautifully it makes sense like the rules of the dream world makes sense because we're figuring them out along with the characters which is brilliant this is speculative right yes that's like a beautiful way to structure a speculative work indeed and it does still like resonate with that core of like personal experience dreams are the internet yeah sexiest bit i liked their first shared lucid dream paris paris and then the other (laughs) part where they're both kind of realizing that it was a shared dream that they both kind of worked out on their own. The reason the first lucid dream, sex dream they have is so sexy is because she doesn't think it's real. She immediately goes to that place of being like totally open with her body and like intimate and silly and like doing all of the dumb stuff you think about or read about or see in rap videos and like having fun with it. Like they are like really over the top. You only see like the very beginning. Yeah. That is uh, super fascinating. And I think also the idea of someone thinking about you in that way, like Alton immediately like also having the experience of like, this isn't real. So, and he just like rips off her dress is also very sexy. Yeah, that was sexy. What was your sexiest part? Typical of me. Like again, cause there wasn't like a ton of real sexy parts. Like I found that sexy. I was pissed that it was fade to black, but like, I think. Yes, so upsetting. So, I like they would continue to refer to it. And I'm like, can we like get a flashback then? The one on Fiji where she's like working on the sunset and waiting for him to show up. And she's like made this hammock. And then like he finally shows up and he's Ugh. like, I love what you did with the sunset. And she's like, get your own hammock, la la la. And he's like, I want this one. And then they like snuggle and she like gets into like that space between collarbone and neck and just like sleep there because they've been so tired in their lucid dreaming. (laughs) They're like, they've never been sleeping. So then they just sleep together in this dream with the ocean lapping. And I loved that. I thought that was so sweet. Yeah, like a real brooch of intimacy to... Right, and that she conceives of it that way where she's like, this She only made one hammock. She knew what she was doing. And like, that was like one of those moments. And it worked out. Such a relief when you flirt with someone and it works out. (laughs) Yeah. Weirdest part. Hmm. Pete in general. Pete felt really uneven to me as husband and then like as erstwhile lesser villain of the scene. I was like, that feels lazy. We talked about Pete a lot. Mm-hmm, we did. We talk about Malcolm, who also feels like a real ratchet up. She's still embarrassed when she farts around her husband. Oh, God. I read that, too. And I was like, I fucking highlighted that. I was like, ew. Ew. Oh, my God. Okay. Can so I just many do a lines, quick though. fire of weird parts for me? Yeah, please. She's scared to fart in front of her husband. Mm-hmm. Everyone talks about how hot it is for a guy to have a moleskin, which I can't think of anything less. Feeling when she's mad about the great Gatsby, she says, When do we see him ask her for her consent? Meaning, when do we see Gatsby ask Daisy for her consent? I just commented, What? Like, it's, <laughs> it's such a like misfire on that text. Yeah, the phrase soccer player's body. Mm-hmm. 
I don't understand. It's like he's wiry and an actor. He's an actor <laughs> because soccer players are constantly accused of being like oh faking their injuries mm-hmm. or over. Mm-hmm. She also says a lot of Englishisms. She does have a lot of Englishisms, but she also has like what I would call why? puns that don't fire. But why does she do Englishisms? I don't know. She thinks that she's smart. All right, fair enough. So in his notes, when Alton is dreaming and he's not dreaming lucidly with her, like she doesn't take her pill or like for whatever reason they don't hook up in their dreams, he manifests what he begins calling the hologram of Ness. And then at one point he calls it the hollow, H-O-L-O hyphen Ness, which is then hollowness. Mm -hmm. I was like, "Mm mm-hmm. Good job. Hollowness. There is so much like air jerk off. Yes! (laughs) Significant to note that Leia was wearing the green poncho from indoor, not the Jabba the Hutt bikini because I'm I'm a classy guy. I'm like, uh. Jack off. (laughs) Also, Um, she's way hotter in that outfit. Let's be real. She looks amazing in that green poncho. Everyone thinks she's hotter in that outfit. Everyone. It doesn't make you classy. You're fucking having a wet dream about it. I think Carrie Fisher was 17 in that. Congratulations, dude. 19? She was a kid. Not an Endor. She was 17 plus 3, 20. She's 23. <laughs> oh my God. That's what she said. He crowed, pumping his fist. Mm-hmm. Heinous. Heinous. Was my comment. Heinous. No, I joke so people like me. This was supposed to give mm-hmm. our hero death, but that's why everyone tells jokes. Yeah, literally. That's where this text broke for me. Like it made itself in the details. Like there were some really beautiful ones, like the pill pulling her under like the bottom of a stiff drink. But then it's like the Endor outfit rather than the slave costume. I'm like, fuck you, man. Fuck Be you. Like, Moleskine <laughs> equals kryptonite when the bartender asks him <laughs> When did Gatsby ask Daisy for her consent? <laughs> I tell you what. I've been a bartender and I've seen men in knit caps and flannel and hiking boots at the end of my bar scribbling maniacally into their moleskins. And the first thing I thought was audible eye roll. Everything about you is curated for this moment. Like yeah. whoever you think your audience is, is like, Mm-mm, buddy. No one is watching you. And if they were, they're rolling their eyes so She'd loud. She'd never seen the original Star Wars, but she saw the prequels. Complete deal breaker. Like, is that supposed to make you charming? What is that? Also, like, how can you see the prequels and not the others? Like, that doesn't even make sense to me. I can't envision a person. She, she was a young person. I guess. When the prequels came and out. And then you don't see the others? Like, No, she just saw the three prequels and was like, okay. Don't like it. There's a lot of kids who did that. She was significantly younger than him. Mm, it did say that. He's like very... Very much being an asshole. He is an asshole. Also, the prequels are better than you think. That Welcome to my TED Talk. <laughs> it's like, also, you're at a wet room about Carrie Fisher. Like, fucking join the club, man. <sighs> There's stuff in here that, though, is like, oh, wow. Like, I wanted to break his heart because that would let me know it was mine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's good stuff in here, but there's, there's really good stuff. In but here. like the stuff that tries to be charming and doesn't just like convey a very human feeling is exhausting and it's repellent try hard. and try hard. But overall, I think people should read it. I think it's a romance. Despite everything, I agree. I would recommend this to a lot of people because it takes a genre and then bends its edges. And I think Mm -hmm. that's fascinating. And its premise is interesting. And I like that the happily ever after just ends up with him at her door. She's already packed her backpack. She's going to go by herself to Paris. She's going to like cold turkey her addiction. And he's like, you know, I could go with you to the airport. 
Yeah, it was really lovely. That was lovely. And like, you know, sort of like unheavy in a pretty heavy book. Truly. It was a really lovely happily ever after. Yeah. Womance for me. Me too. Despite all. Despite all the other stuff. Womance. Yeah, Kitty Cook. I don't know if I'm going to read the rest of your series, but can recommend. Can recommend. Really pretty cover. Is this only digitally produced or is this in your bookstores? I think it's only digitally produced. Hmm. Yeah, why don't digital books have better covers? Great question. Because like it feels like a lot of your cover budget can get eaten up by like different textures and printing colors. But if you don't have that, like just make an awesome cover. Mm-hmm. Kitty, what year was this? 2019. Yeah, recent. New, very recent. Brass Anvil Books in Seattle. Yeah, I, I really like the way the text looked on the page for this. They had a really giant chapter titles mm-hmm. and there weren't numbered. They were always had interesting lead-ins. Mm-hmm. Great. Another one in the can. Does no. it make you want to go to Seattle? No. Exactly. Keep it Written weird, Emerald true- City. <laughs> Written by a true local. It doesn't make you want to go to that place. <laughs> With that, later haters. <laughs> now loosen your stays, but never your principles. Mwah. Mwah. Whoa, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>